And as we turn to that word and consider it, let's have a brief prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be now and always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are witnessing right now the power of a promise made and kept. Let's have a look at a photo. I wonder if our slides are up. I'm clicking my buttons. Are we having some joy? Let's try again. Yes. Oh, there we are. There is Queen Elizabeth. This is a promise that has been quoted often in the last few days, quite understandably. She was 21. I declare before all of you that my whole life, whether it be short or long, will be devoted to your service. And uh, what we've seen is that that promise, which was so clearly stated, it has been fulfilled under the glaring light of media attention for over, uh, well, 70 years. She promised, she delivered, and that faithfulness has actually provided for our nation a bedrock for our national life. Now, all of that is just really a pale reflection of God's promise-keeping faithfulness. He has demonstrated a commitment to us so sure that we could build our lives on it with certainty for eternity. Here we are. For as many promises God has made, promises, as many promises as God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken to us to the glory of God. Now we're going to come back to that statement in a little while, um, but before we do that, we need to spend a little while, actually a, a, a fair chunk of time, basically understanding and getting our bearings in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. That's what we're studying at the moment in our morning services, well, in our evening services, and in our fellowship groups. So let's just try and orient our brains. Warning, there's some geography coming up and maps. We'll see how we get on. Right, so Paul is Jesus' specially authorised messenger. He, he's an apostle, that was what the, the, uh, they were labelled. He was an apostle to the non-Jewish regions all around the Mediterranean. Now, here's a map of the area that he covered. Um, this is just from Google Maps. This is, you can see it today. There's, um, there is um, Jerusalem there, working all the way out. He was there in, in, um, in what is now Turkey, up there through um, what is now northern Greece, right down into Greece there. And so really, that whole arc of the Mediterranean, Paul was active in. And where he went, he would go to cities, he would preach, and suddenly a church would spring up. And he would have, therefore, to go on caring for those churches as he travelled around by sending envoys, messengers, people like Titus and Timothy, um, Silas, um, to these churches to help them out. And, of course, the other thing he did is he wrote letters, of which we have a number in the New Testament. Now, about 50 AD, so... 20 years or so after Jesus' um, uh, death and uh, resurrection, less than 20 years, Paul arrived in the Greek city of Corinth, which is just there, where, they, where the, um, the, the marker is. He arrived in the Greek city of Corinth, and he 
founded a church there. He preached for 18 months. The church was born. And this church was a source of utter joy. And it was a source of the most intense pain to the apostle. During the next seven years, this church in Corinth received at least four letters from Paul, um, uh, from its founder, at least four letters. Two of them survive. And those are the two letters that we know in our New Testaments as uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. They're two of what were originally four letters that Paul wrote to this church. Now, Corinth, if you want to understand the city of Corinth, Corinth was a city on anabolic steroids. It was completely of a place. It was, um, it was at a crossroads in the ancient world. It was a seaport. It was um, a land route for trade. Um, it was very cosmopolitan, influential, opinionated, prosperous. Um, and of course, there was the underclass there as well to service the needs of this uh, very upwardly mobile place. Now, many of the new believers in Corinth had um, come from that lower social level. Um, the church did have a handful of the powerful people as well, the influential, the educated, the wealthy, who felt because they bossed things in life that they could boss things in the church as well. And that caused various problems in the church. But for all its problems, the church in Corinth was absolutely bursting with life. The Corinthian church itself was on anabolic steroids. It was, and, and for Paul, the apostle, to channel the energy of this Corinthian church, which was an explosion of spiritual energy and life, it was incredibly hard work. And so, in a, around um, 53 AD, so about three years after Paul founded the church, he writes a second, uh, he writes, um, a second letter to them, which is in fact what we know as 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians was actually a second letter that he wrote to them. And um, he wrote it while he was establishing the church across the, um, across the sea. Where are we going? Come on, wakey, wakey. Across the sea in Ephesus. There's Ephesus. Paul's there, and he sends the letter to Corinth. That's 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians basically has to address all sorts of problems. And the sorts of problems it addressed... There were factions growing up because the Corinthians felt that they were such connoisseurs of what was spiritual that they were sitting in judgment on their ministers going, well, I personally, I think Paul's fantastic. And the others are going, well, I'm rather a Peter man myself. And the others are like, well, frankly, Apollos speaks better than all the others because they thought that Christian ministry was basically a public speaking competition because that's how they were wired to think. Other things were going on. There was a terrible misunderstanding of, um, of, uh, of, um, of uh, Christian teaching on moral freedom. They had got completely the wrong end of the stick and were actually living in gross sexual immorality. Paul had to address that. There was also this kind of one-upmanship going on in terms of, um, of the, the, the members were seeking out great experiences of the Holy Spirit and were then boasting to one another and putting each other down because they... Didn't have start, they had better experiences than the next person. And so it was, a, it, was, it was a mess. So 1 Corinthians really is what we could describe as a letter for grasping nettles. If you know 1 Corinthians, you'll know that. And uh, he is grasping a lot of nettles. And he knows, Paul knows as he sends 1 Corinthians, that this letter is going to cause some serious ripples. And so he sends his trusted colleague, Timothy, 
after the letter arrived to find out how they were doing. But Paul himself is planning a visit to Corinth. He knows he needs to go himself and see that things are really going to be okay. He tells us at the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter, 15, chapter 16, he tells us his plan. He says, I'm going to travel. He's in Ephesus. He says, I'm going to travel up through here. I'm going to go across to the area called Macedonia. And I'm going to go to visit the churches around Philippi and Thessalonica. And then I'm going to work my way down across land. And I'm going to come to you at Corinth. That's his plan as he writes 1, uh, as he writes one Corinthians. Thing is... Things didn't quite work out like that. Just look at the heading in our Bibles, if you've still got that open in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Paul's change of plans. Paul's travel plans had to change. And the Corinthians were criticizing Paul about this change of his plans. Now, we, we can only piece this together, really, uh, what happened. We can only piece it together, uh, but we, the gist is pretty clear. And Paul, basically, what we, what we discover is that Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church became very, very turbulent. So, Timothy, this is what seems to have happened. Timothy seems to have visited Corinth and discovered that all was not well. And then when Paul hears the bad news, he decides he has to go immediately, abandons his plans, he immediately leaves Ephesus, and he crosses the, the Aegean, and he heads over to Corinth to address these problems. Now, that was a very difficult visit. He refers to it. Look at your text. Is there 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He refers back to that visit as a painful visit. It's known as the painful visit, Paul's painful visit. We don't know the exact details. Um, the Corinthians did. <laughs> We're spared the exact details of precisely what happened. But basically what happened, we pick it up from comments in in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and chapter 7, it seems that one person, one particular person in the church had publicly humiliated, um, insulted, or possibly even assaulted um, the apostle. Um, that's, we, don't know, we don't know why that had happened. We don't know who it was. But all the Corinthians knew it was public, it was widely known, this person had absolutely stepped completely out of order and had, had, um, had confronted Paul. But the most painful thing about it of all was that the majority of the church, even though they all knew, had done absolutely nothing about it. Well, more about that painful visit in a minute. But we just need to note that sometime during that painful visit, Paul must have changed his plans. Because perhaps he sensed that they were going to need a bit more input. So he decided that actually he needed to make two visits to Corinth. So look at chapter, if you've got the, the text open again there, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 15 to 16, Paul says, I plan to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then have you send me on my way to Judea. Now if that's all gobbledygook, let me show you it on the map. What he says is, I'm in Ephesus, he says, my plan at, at that point was for him to come across, winding his way through the islands to Corinth, then to go up to Macedonia, which is this area here, and then to come back down again through Corinth, and then to set out from Corinth with their help down here, it's off the map now, to Jerusalem, Judea. 
that was the plan at that point. So that's where we are. Problem is, that ain't what happened either. That is not what happened. Paul changed his mind. As he explains, um, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. Basically, he wanted to give them an opportunity and some space to deal with and discipline the person who had caused such a big problem. Because this would avoid a confrontation that was going to turn out to be painful for everyone. So Paul decided that he wouldn't visit Corinth immediately. But on the other hand, he couldn't remain in, in Ephesus either. Um, he's Ephesus here, where he was, was, as you may know from Acts chapters 19 and from Acts chapter 19, if you remember that, things in Ephesus turned extremely hazardous for him. Very dangerous. And so he had to leave um, Ephesus. And so he decided to revert to his original plan, which was to head to, oh, whoopsie, which was to head to Macedonia first, up here, overland, well, up to Troas there, across to Neapolis probably in, in, um, in Macedonia, and then to travel around to Corinth eventually when he'd been through there. That was eventually what he did. Now, Instead of, so, so basically, what Paul did is, he, is he, he went along with his original plans, but he realized that he couldn't leave the situation in Corinth unaddressed. So before he goes here, he sends another letter. He sends another letter to the church in Corinth. And this letter, obviously, was also pretty highly charged. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. He says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. We don't have that letter either. That's actually the third letter to the Corinthians. We don't have it. But we know that what he said in it basically was you need to deal with this person who has caused the problem. You have got to deal with the one who behaved so appallingly. And uh, we know that by the time Paul writes his next letter, which is what we have as 2 Corinthians, which is actually the fourth letter, when the time, by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, we know he had received good news. Because we know that from chapter 7 in 2 Corinthians, because basically Paul, by this point, is in, um, has arrived in Macedonia. He's arrived up here. Um, he's up there in Macedonia, and he is met by his friend Titus, who has just come from Corinth, met him in Macedonia, and told him the letter went down well. They've dealt with the situation. They've dealt with it, and it's good news. So, this was, uh, this was, this was, this was why Paul had changed his mind. This is why Paul had changed his travel plans. There's perfectly good reason for it. He wanted to give them space to sort things out and the wisdom had paid off. But now the problem is new trouble is brew was brewing at Corinth. There's new problems going on. Some preachers have arrived who have a very different message to Paul. They're, quite, they're very um, influenced by the, the Old Testament uh, the, the, and they, they're wanting the, to, to make the, um, the, uh, the, the Jewish members of the Corinthian church more Jewish. And um, that was causing problems. They had a very different style to Paul. They were very slick. They also had a very different kind of um, 
uh, sort of set of values. They were all like, we're into, we're into being powerful and independent, and Paul, meanwhile, was anything but that. And uh, they were uh, rich, and Paul wasn't. They were, they were, uh, and so these teachers had arrived, and they basically wanted to, they thought they were far superior to Paul. And they were determined to, well, to, to have the ear of the Corinthian church and to, and to turn the Corinthian church again against Paul. Um, very turbulent relationship. And you get a sense of what these false teachers, what these new incomers are saying about Paul um, from chapter two, verse, uh, from chapter one, sorry, chapter one, verse 17. This is the sort of thing they are saying. So Paul's changed his travel plans. And this is what the Corinthians are saying. Well, Paul's saying, when I, when I plan to do this, did I do it lightly? Do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no? You get that? The allegation is that Paul is basically unstable, unreliable, a promise breaker, unworthy of trust, a person who says in one breath, yeah, and no, in the same breath. Um, a religious politician. You're a politician, you get to the end of the answer, did you say yes or no? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, but yeah, but no, but no, but yeah, but no, but yeah. Isn't it? Little Britain. What's her name? Um, what's her name? Vicky Pollard. The no, but yeah, but no, but yeah. That's what they were accusing him of. You're unstable, Paul. Well, we've already considered, Paul responds to this. And he said, he, we've already considered, actually, we've already considered the, the less important point that Paul makes in response to it, which is that he does have weighty reasons for changing his plans. Not light reasons, weighty reasons. And if the Corinthians had bothered to ask, they would have realized that Paul didn't change his travel plans lightly. And, and the fact that they didn't ask actually is shame on them. They should have asked. But that is not the apostle's most important point. When they accuse him of dishonesty... <coughs> They're not only accusing him of being dishonest, they're accusing him of being an absolute hypocrite and a complete twit. Because when he was in Corinth, the message he declared is this, that God is entirely unswervingly, transparently and unambiguously faithful. He keeps his word. That was the essence of Paul's message. Verses 18 to 19, this is what Paul and his preaching was among them. As surely as God is faithful, our message to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. What do they think of him? Do they think Paul was so hypocritical that he was able to preach that message and then lack dependability in his own personal life? Or do they just consider him an idiot? Incapable of grasping that a faithful God cannot have fickle ministers? Well, whatever they thought of Paul, let them focus on the message itself. Let us do the same. The sheer certainty of God's faithfulness in Jesus Christ well, it calls from our hearts the unreserved amen. It, it should put in our hearts that dependability, both before God and before other people, that others can rely on. 
mercy in Jesus Christ, God the Father, speaks an eternal yes. And in verse 20, Paul explains what he means. What is this eternal yes that he speaks? For as many promises as God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. Many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ Jesus. God makes promises, many promises. They are all fulfilled in Jesus. Now Liz Truss recently became our Prime Minister. Did you miss that in the news over the last uh, couple of weeks? Easy to miss. Um, do you remember when she, I, well, you may remember, I don't know, when she spoke to the members of the Conservative Party, she said, my friends, I know that we will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. She certainly promised a lot. Do you like that cartoon, that map cartoon? They're arriving home to find all their delivery notes on the door. Sorry, you were out when Liz Truss tried to deliver, deliver, deliver. I quite like that. Well, God made, she made a lot of promises. Will she deliver? Hope so. Let's see. Well, God has made so many promises. And he delivers, he delivers, he delivers. In the life, the birth, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Jesus, his son. I mean, we could go on for a long time on this. But let's just take some of the major promises of the Old Testament. So, God promises Eve... Back in the Garden of Eden, that one of her descendants will defeat the devil. Yes! Jesus has done it when he shed his blood. And he will complete the job when he tramples Satan at his return. God promised Abraham that one of his descendants will bring blessing to all nations. Yes! Jesus has done it through his resurrection from the dead and the sending of his church into all the world and eventually when he renews the whole creation and all nations at his coming. He promised David that one of David's descendants would rule as king forever. He has done it, yes, in Jesus, raising him from the dead and having him, taking him in his ascension into heaven to, to assume the throne of the universe. One lovely promise, I don't know if you know it, from the, promise Zecha, from the prophet Zechariah, God says, I will remove the sins of the people in a single afternoon. Yes! Good Friday! God has done it in Jesus Christ. In one afternoon, the sins of humanity dealt with for all who put their trust in him. God told the prophet Jeremiah, promised, that he would make a new covenant with his people, putting the Spirit in their lives and writing his law on their hearts. Yes! Jesus has done it. He's come to give the Holy Spirit to believers of every nation, to give power to renovate the broken characters of every single person who comes and puts their trust in him. Again, he promised Isaiah a new creation, new heavens and a new earth. Death evicted. Yes. Again, Jesus, by his resurrection from the dead, has started the new creation, which he will complete when he comes. Certainty. You know, certainty, being certain. Certainty in ultimate matters, matters of meaning and uh, destiny and truth, of God. Well, it's probably never been frowned on like it is today. I mean, it's always been suspected uh, certainty for some good reason 
But today, well, we've made a studied art in the philosophy departments of our universities, rippling out over the decades through our culture. We've made an art form of being uncertain and going, well, we don't really know, do we? We don't know. It's your take on things, my take on things, and so on. Isn't it just a bit shallow and inflexible and narrow and arrogant and probably a little bit thick to claim to know and be definitely sure about anything, about whether, even whether there is a God, let alone to be certain what God's heart is towards us? Well, many people think so. I, I like this quote from um, Bertrand Russell. Well, I don't like the quote, but I think it's illustrative. Bertrand Russell, the 20th century philosopher, the whole problem with the world, he says with, with um, considerable certainty, ironically, the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser people so full of doubts. So that, that's, the, that's the, the, the kind of mindset um, that, we're, that we're in. But God has promised a resounding yes. God has promised a resounding yes in his son. It's openly declared. It's unequivocal. We can be certain of his heart towards everybody who trusts in Jesus. He is for them. There is no doubt about it. There is no shadow of a doubt that that is the case. We can be certain of his forgiveness because he has promised and he has paid. We can be certain of the future because Christ is risen. And we can be certain that God will not let us fall by the wayside as we wait for this future. He will not drop us on the way. The, the three statements Paul makes about God the Holy Spirit here um, assures us. The Spirit has anointed us, says Paul in verse 21. He's anointed us. In other words, he's, he's, um, he, is, he has set us aside as his own. He has put a seal on us, a stamp of ownership upon us. He has placed the Spirit in us as a deposit placed in our lives now to confirm that he will fully redeem us on that day. So God has given to us the most plain-speaking, full-throated, yes, I, I, come to me, I love you, that we could possibly imagine. It could not have been made clearer to us, full-throated and clear. Will we respond with a sort of weak, Amen. To that. The great Victorian preacher, Alexander McLaren, um, there he is. Um, oh, he's, he's, uh, his words have disappeared. Anyway, we can just admire his beautiful facial hair, the under-the-chin beard there. <coughs> the prince of expositors, as he's sometimes known. Extraordinary preacher um, back in, the, in Manchester in the Victorian era. He said this, he said, it, it is an insult to the certainty of revelation when there is hesitation in the believer. It is an insult to the certainty of revelation when there is hesitation in the believer. And that explains Paul's words in the second part of verse 20. Every promise God has made is yes in Christ, and so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In other words, God says to us, yes, and we say, amen, yes. I receive it, true, amen just means, it's a Hebrew word, truly it really means, truly, yes, truly, yes. 
or are you American? Amen. Are you Greek or Russian or Ukrainian? Amen. How do you say it? I don't know. I'm English, so I say, Amen. Yes. Amen. God says a clear yes to us. We say, Amen. And Amen is not just ultimately really from our lips, but must come from the whole of our lives as we step out of the shadows. What are the shadows there casting their darkness over you? I know what some of them are for me. Fear, disobedience, instability, ignorance, the influence of others, pride. Step out of the shadows and hear his yes to you. He promises openly. He delivers in Christ. Promises openly. He delivers in Christ. So stop stumbling around in a kind of evasive, no, but yeah, but no, but yeah, but maybe, kind of spirituality. But instead, say, yes, amen, Jesus. All that you have, all that God has promised is yes in you, and I receive it with joy. Thank you. We've seen the power in recent uh, weeks and in fact, over the last 70 years of the power of promises made and kept. What does it give? It gives stability. It gives, it gives a sense that you know where you are, a sense of certainty in the step. Well, if that was true of our late queen and our national life, and we hope so much that the funeral is a wonderful time and for our nation tomorrow, it'll be sad as well, but hopefully it will be a landmark in a good way. Uh, hopefully her example inspires us to speak and act consistently um, and dependably, just like Paul says, this is, this is how we have tried to act, whatever you think of us Corinthians. But how much more does God's faithfulness transform those who know it? Let us know it today. He says to us in Christ, yes, we say back to him, through Christ, Amen. Heavenly Father, write this certainty on our hearts today. Send us out from here later today with our hearts assured. We pray that you would give us grace to know these things by the power of the Spirit whom you have poured into the lives of all who trust in Christ. Help those who are struggling this morning to come out of the shadows, whatever is causing those shadows. Help them to step into the light of love that God has, shed, has given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name.